Welcome to another Living Wild podcast. I'm Brent Philbin. I'm joined by LaDon Rodriguez. And today we are going to speak with Craig Emmerich. Craig was just at KetoCon where we did a lot of cool content that we have coming at you. In the meantime, you're going to learn all about Craig and what he does in this space, why he's on the Living Wild podcast, and what he can contribute to the space as a whole. Remember, real food is medicine, and we are here talking with the most important people that are trying to spread that message. So, without further ado, it's time of the Living Wild Podcast. First of all, Craig, I want to say welcome to the show, and I think we should just get right into it, get right into the nitty-gritty meat and potatoes here, or actually, I don't know if we can say meat and potatoes. Anyway, speaking of no potatoes, how was KetoCon? Give me the overall how it was. Great. It's, it's amazing to see the reaction and the interaction with people. You know, we've been doing this for such a long time. It's been, I want to say... Almost 20 years for Maria, and she's been helping clients for a good chunk of that time, you know, with keto lifestyles. Myself, I've been doing it keto for, I don't know, 13 plus years. Wow. And I've, since that time, kind of changed my career over to being part of this business as well, and dive, dove into all the science and information as well. But what's really interesting and rewarding about this as a job is just meeting these people that you've changed their lives. You know, KetoCon is a really great way to do that. And we get so much interaction. I mean, Maria had her right. presentation on Saturday around, I don't know, 11 o'clock. And we got there about an hour and a half ahead of time. And it took us almost that entire hour and a half just to get to the stage. Wow. Because Every person wanted to come up and get a picture with her and talk to them about their story and, you know, people tearing up because their life has changed completely because of this lifestyle just from, we never met them before. They just, you know, bought our book and changed their life and got off all these medications and feel so much better. I mean, it's just incredibly rewarding. That's a super inspiring way to look at things. You know what? Let's start with Maria because you mentioned her and I kind of want to learn. Was it her that inspired you? You that inspired her? How did that come about? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, I touched on it a little bit there, but you know, it's been a long journey for her. Uh, it started out, you know, way back in high school. You know, she was always struggling with her weight and some health issues. She had IBS and acid reflux and what turned out to be PCOS. And she had these uh, issues that she could not get rid of. And she did everything she was supposedly supposed to do, eating lots of healthy whole grains and low fat and, you know, the, all the things she was being told to do, being more active, exercise. She was up to running marathons, but still had all these health issues, still had the extra weight that she couldn't get rid of, doing everything supposedly the way she's supposed to. Quotes. She went to school for nutrition and exercise performance got the nutrition side was a lot of the same things that she was doing that she knew didn't work for her so when she got out of school she said there's just got to be another way there's got to be something i'm missing here and she just kept learning and kept reading all the scientific papers and books that she could get her hands on implementing these changes she was learning on herself 
lowering carbs and doing these things that she was reading about. And in her own experience, she was seeing the results. So she was seeing the IBS go away. She was seeing the acid reflux go away. Her PCOS was reversed in just healing her own self just through all the information she found. People wanted to know how she did it. So she started the whole process of writing books and starting to work with people to help them change their lifestyle. And like I said, that's almost 20 years ago now that where that journey started. Wow. So you're pretty far ahead of the curve on that. Yeah. You know, myself, it took me another five, six years to come around totally to this lifestyle because I was still traveling a lot for work and I used to brew my own beer and do things that, Whoa. you know, don't really fit well with keto. Uh, and it took me a while to come off of that, but mainly it was her leading by example. I saw how much energy she had, how much mental clarity and focus, you know, and all these improvements. And I wanted that. I didn't want the afternoon slump anymore where, you know, you're at work and your energy tanks and you want to take a nap. Yeah, uh, of course. So I started implementing these things she was doing and I started see the, seeing the benefits myself. When her business was starting to grow... I was kind of the guy behind the scenes. So my degree is in electrical engineering, and I did a lot of product management over the years. And so I just started kind of behind the scenes, you know, keeping your website going and all this kind of stuff. And it just made a lot of sense for me to pull away at one point where there was enough activity, enough clients, enough things going on, and just commit myself to this. And ever since I've been doing, I'm an engineer by, you know, nature. So I, I, study everything I can get my hands on on a topic when I want to dive into it. And that's what I've been doing with this lifestyle. That's a really interesting pivot going from engineer to the health and fitness in the keto world. But I feel like you're not the only one to have done some sort of a pivot like that. I mean, it's a super important space and it's super important to get the message out there. You are getting the message out there in more ways than one. Obviously, you're on this podcast, but you've also written multiple books. Why don't you kind of give us a rundown? Tell us about those books. Tell us what they look like. One of them was called Keto, The Complete Guide to Success, I think, right? Yeah, that was the first one I completely co-authored with Maria. I, I was always, again, kind of behind the scenes. with you know, I, I would design the meal plans and get the nutritional info calculated for all of her books. All this research I was doing about biology and how the body works. When we came to writing that book, I wrote about half of it. I wrote about the biology and how the body works and how this lifestyle can really be helpful for healing and reversing diseases. And we have a new book, the Carnivore Cookbook, that's coming out at the end of the year that I'm also writing all the front matter for. So all the science about, you know, plants and anti-nutrients and carnivore lifestyle. Wow. So you went a little bit of a pivot from keto to full-on carnivore, which obviously can be a little bit controversial for some people. And there's good parts and bad parts. Well, you know, it's just like that. So why don't you kind of give us a breakdown of how that looks for you and why carnivore? Yeah, you know, carnivore, there's kind of different levels to it. And it really depends on what you're doing it for. If it's for general health and weight loss, you could kind of do any level you like, maybe with some going up to even some spices and low carb sauces and things. But if you're doing it for in the book, we actually define what we call a carnivore autoimmune protocol. And that is for people with autoimmune disorders, you know, which is a wide, wide range of things, digestive issues. If you're looking to heal from specific things like that, or we know a lot of people that have done carnivore to help with their bipolar disease or those type of issues, which they can get fully into remission if they eat 
full, like what we would call level one or level two carnivore, where it's no plants at all. Myself found relief from my Lyme disease that I was diagnosed with about two years ago. My pain is greatly reduced when I am eliminate all plants. Wow. Oh, yeah. I'd read about the Lyme disease situation where you're using this to manage that basically. So give me a rundown of what that looked like. Like, what is your life like with Lyme disease? How is eliminating plants kind of helping that? What does it look like post-keto, post-carnivore, and how it's being managed? What's interesting about it is, you know, I've been keto for, like I said, maybe 13 years, but I didn't start getting symptoms from Lyme disease until about six years ago. So I was keto the whole time. And so I actually think that was a blessing and a curse (laughs) because the thing about Lyme is we have a lot of clients that have Lyme and just going to keto can be very helpful for them for managing pain. Some of them going all the way to carnivore helps even more. And actually some of the original people that started doing a carnivore type diet like 20 years ago, like Charlene Anderson is one who had chronic Lyme disease and going all the way to full carnivore put most of the symptoms into remission for her. She's been doing that for 20 years and she's thriving. But myself, I was already keto. And so I, it was kind of a blessing and curse because I was not, I was able to manage the pain, you know, so I, I was able to keep functioning where a lot of people wouldn't be able to because I was already keto. But the, it got worse and worse and worse. And as, as Lyme disease, when it becomes chronic, so often happens, you get more and more of these issues that creep in, whether it's heavy metals or mold toxicity, because your immune system is so depressed. That was kind of my course. And after about five years of things getting worse and worse, I just had to figure out what was going on. And I went to the doctor and got the proper test done. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's super brutal. So I guess one of my questions would be what specifically when you're thinking about what is different from keto, from carnivore, directly related to like what specifically have you anecdotally, obviously that some of this, maybe you've had tests, I don't know, but anecdotally, what have you felt different with? For keto by itself, the things that pretty much everybody, you know, everybody will enjoy the benefits of if they stick with it are, you know, mental clarity. You can be hyper-focused on projects and like the mental clarity is just amazing. There's improved moods if you have issues with, you know, moods. All your hormones are made from cholesterol. And so getting a animal, you know, protein-focused, you know, ketogenic type of lifestyle where, you know, you, you protein is a pretty good focus of the diet. You get a lot of the substrates that are needed for healthy hormones. You know, cholesterol is one of those key ingredients to all your hormones. So eating more dietary cholesterol can help with that. And that's what you get from animal proteins and things. There's a whole range of these benefits that you can realize. And myself, I didn't, I lost weight and, you know, I had all of those benefits as well. Triglycerides going way down and those kind of things that we see all the time with keto. But I didn't have any like, you know, IBS or specific issues to heal from, but we have had clients that, I mean, you name the issue. We About 10 years ago, we started saving these testimonies we kept getting. And it was just amazing, all these testimonies of healing that we would get from clients with this lifestyle. So we started recording them. And recently, we've been putting those into our presentations at the end just to inspire people. And it's just shocking the, the amount of things that improve with this lifestyle. We've had people with MS that 
symptoms greatly improve when they're ketogenic. We've had people with Parkinson's that couldn't walk on their heels for 10 years and now can. Really amazing improvements in health. And uh, most of the clients that we have, the way they feel, how much better they feel, how much more energy they have, you know, getting off medications, that's the benefit. Weight loss is actually just kind of a extra benefit. Yeah, bonus. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned your new book, The Carnivore Cookbook, uh, just a little bit ago when we started the carnivore discussion. When is that coming out? I think it's end of December or beginning of January. So tell me a little bit about, a little bit of a preview about what that book might look like. Obviously, it's The Carnivore Cookbook, so I'm guessing it's more carnivore-focused than keto. Yeah, so when I got the diagnosis about two years ago, I started to do more research and looking at some possible things that could help me even more. And one of them was to go carnivore. And about a year and a half ago, I started doing that. And with Lyme disease, there's a lot of issues that, like I said, that can creep in. And I I had high mold, I had high heavy metals and all these things that I've been treating over the last year and a half. But all these treatments I did, nothing really changed some of the issues like migrating pain. I have pain that migrates between my joints. And, And this is common with Lyme disease or also with mold. You wake up one morning and it feels like your knee was sprained. And the next morning you wake up, it feels like your hip was sprained. And it's hard to walk on that hip, which has happened a lot, you know, or my ankle. When I go all the way to carnivore and really eliminate all the plants, my migrating pain is gone. And so that's a huge benefit for me because that, that really holds you back from being active when you've got these basically feels like sprained joints all the time. All right. So let's get into this a little bit because... Looking at your book here, one of the first lines Mm -hmm. is that you're talking about our ancestral humans, basically, Mm. are apex predators. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So at KetoCon, I did a presentation about a case for carnivore. And in that presentation, I walked through all of these key points about, you know, what are we as humans primarily designed to do? And there's a pretty, you know significant case to be made that we're primarily carnivore in our design. The early human ancestors, as well as Neanderthals, which were competing groups about 30 to 50,000 years ago that led to us, you know, the early humans led to us, then Neanderthals died off. But they're both in this similar time frame. They did analysis of the collagen in the bones. From that, you can derive how much of their diet came from what animals. And it's the nitrogen content. They do isotopic analysis. And when they did that, comparing those early human fossils to other uh, animals of that period, so they compared them to deer, they compared them to woolly mammoths, they compared them to hyenas and lions and, and wolves. In all of those analysis, it showed that humans were much more carnivorous than even lions, wolves, and hyenas. They're, they ate more, primarily more meat than those other animals. And a lot of it came from large mammals like woolly mammoths and rhinos. That was the primary diet of those early human ancestors. And this is important because that's a time period when essentially humans came about, right? They started to go away from other primates in their design. Their brains got much bigger their guts got much smaller. And that's another thing. If you look at the gut of us versus other primates, there's three very key differences in our digestive tract. 
from other primates. Number one, the small intestine is twice as long, over twice as long, almost three times as long as other primates. What's the small intestine good for? Digesting nutrient-dense animal proteins and maybe already cooked vegetables. Then you look at the large bowel. Ours is half as long as other primates. What's that good for? Digesting plant material that's hard to digest. Then there's the human, the cecum. The cecum is this pouch where plant matter sits and ferments to turn it into something your body can use. It actually ferments into saturated fatty acids. If you look at something like koala bear, it's got this huge curly pouch where all this plant matter sits and ferments and turns into something they can use. On humans, it's just, it's barely even noticeable as a pouch on the beginning of the large bowel. And so almost nothing can sit in there. And that's why you can't digest plant fiber because it's not, you don't have a cecum to do that. And so you look at all these things. And one other thing that's really interesting is the, the stomach pH. If you look at the stomach pH of different animals, it can kind of tell you which ones are herbivores and which ones are carnivores because the lower, the, the more acidic the stomach, the more carnivore you are, you're digesting more animal proteins. So, you know, things like deer and things that are definitely plant eaters, they'll have like five to six stomach pH, not very acidic. Carnivores typically I think it's about three to four, you know, like wolves and things. Humans are one to two or one to three, usually around like one and a half to two pH. So we're very much designed not only to eat animal protein primarily, but to, you know, you look going back to those early ancestors we we're talking about, you kill a woolly mammoth, it's going to last a long time and they don't have refrigerators. So they were eating from this animal for a long time. And that very, very low stomach pH enabled them as the meat was somewhat turning to still process and digest that. The design of us is, I mean, we can process plants. There's no doubt about that to some extent, right? But if you look at the design, it's designed to primarily digest animal proteins. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. <laughs> you see people who watch Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead, and they've decided that what they're going to do to get healthy is they're going to just drink a bunch of cold-pressed vegetable juices, right? <laughs> I don't know what drove people to do that, but anyway... They'll do that and they'll start to feel bad to you. I mean, yeah. that's not too surprising, I'd imagine. Yeah. And, you know, switching gears to plants, they don't come without any negatives. I mean, we're, we're taught and we grew up unlimited vegetables. Vegetables are the best thing for your body. Well, they're not necessarily the best thing in all cases. And especially when you start to do like green smoothies and juicing where you super concentrate these and because... All plants come with anti-nutrients. Anti-nutrients are kind of what they sound. They're not a nutrient to our body. Our body doesn't need them, can't use them, doesn't want them. And when you eat a lot of them, they can build up in your system and cause issues. There's a whole series. There's hundreds of these compounds in plants that are basically they're like natural pesticides, right? An animal like a deer can run away from a predator. That's their defense mechanism. A plant can't. So a plant, plants have de devised these kind of natural pesticides or natural defenses because the plant doesn't want you to eat the roots or the stalk or the leaves because it's going to kill it. It wants you to eat the fruit. So then you pass on the seeds and, and, but it doesn't want you to eat the rest. And so they developed, you know, all of these compounds like phytates and glucosinolates and oxalates that are co compounds in the plants that can kill small insects 
to kind of keep them from eating them. In humans, it doesn't kill us, but it can be an irritant. You know, it can lead to leaky gut, can lead to problems, especially when you get really high amounts of them. I feel like plants get kind of neglected on the evolutionary scale because you think about, you know, animals evolving, you think about bugs or even fish, but people forget that plants can have defense mechanisms too, and they evolve the same way. But they ha- they do, you know, I mean, think of, you know, some are even poisonous, some, you know, they, they develop different mechanisms, you know, cabbage alone, cabbage has like 54 anti-nutrient compounds. Most of these, we don't even know what they do in a human <laughs> and what the toxicity levels are. Uh, oxalates are becoming more and more of an issue for a lot of people. You get oxalate dumping. The majority of kidney stones are really oxalate related. What's an example of something that might be high in oxalate? All nuts and seeds are going to be high in oxalates. Spinach, you know, and leafy greens, kale, they're going to be high in oxalates. So you do like a spinach smoothie, you're getting a big dose of these oxalates. And oxalates are basically like a tiny crystal that looks, you know, under, in our book, we're putting these, a study was done where they did electron microscope and looked at the oxalates in a kiwi fruit. They look like little needles and they're microscopic, you know, but they're all these little needles. And again, it's a plant mechanism to kill small bugs and things. When they eat these, they it rips up their digestive tract and kills them so they don't eat them anymore. But in humans, you know, they can lead to maybe leaky gut or these other issues that can cause problems. And one of the things that we, you know, precaution in our our carnivore book is oxalate dumping can be an issue for people when they start doing carnivore and eliminate all the plants. And this will turn out as, you know, a sty in your eye or, you know, you get these kind of crystally. Uh, on the corner of your eyes, uh, it's the body pushing out the oxalates because you're no longer putting them in the diet. As they can now push them out and get rid of them. Yeah, joints. Yes. Yeah, you know your joints. Your joints will get sometimes get achy or those type of things. If you have a sore, a cut, or a sore that's trying to heal, they'll try to push those oxalates out in those locations. So it, I mean. You know, we've been taught that these plants are the best thing ever and there's no negatives to them when in reality there are negatives and there's actually, you know, oxalates have a toxicity level. So you can die from getting too much oxalate. Um, the, the levels usually, uh, the range that studies have shown is like three and a half gram of oxalate to like 30, which is a really wide range. But the reason is, it depends on how damaged your body is. So if you've got, you know, leaky gut and all these issues, you might be only about three and a half, where if you've got a really healthy immune system and all this, you might be more like 30 for your before it becomes toxic and could kill you. But there was a guy in Europe that died from eating three large bowls of sorrel soup because he had diabetes and he had leaky gut and he, that was his oxalate toxicity level. And nobody really talks about that. <laughs> you know, you can eat too much plants and actually, if they're very high in oxalates, like green smoothies, you eat four or five green smoothies, it could reach toxicity level. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. You hear a lot of the anecdotes after where people are saying, oh, yeah. you know, I felt bad, but, but you know, yeah. I totally, <laughs> I totally lost weight, so it's fine. Switching gears a little bit. Let's let's go talking about diabetes. And, you know, before I ended up at Wild Foods, I'm I'm not diabetic despite the way I may look yet. I mean, I guess I wasn't the last time I got checked. Anyway, the before you started looking at Wild Foods and looking at the way things are done here, 
you don't realize all the misinformation that's out there. People are just like, hey, just don't eat sugar and you're fine on diabetes or eat more vegetables if you want to be healthier. And they don't really look at the big picture. They don't look at the macro macrocosm, I guess, of all this stuff. So can you speak specifically to diabetes with relation to carnivore and keto? So I've my understanding of the science and, and biology behind diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is that our fat cells, you know, I, I've heard this in the past, and it's true that when we're young, we make a lot of fat cells. But as we get older, we don't really make that many more new fat cells. We just kind of either fill them up or deplete them. And that's, you know, weight gain or weight loss. And that is true. And what it turns out is that the thing that starts the roller coaster of insulin resistance is when the fat cells that you do have, when they get overstuffed and inflamed, they say, okay, I can't store any more fat. So I'm going to reject insulin because I don't want any more fat in me. And so I don't explode, right? So they're too big. They're too stuffed and inflamed. Now, when you get a whole bunch of your fat cells that are like that, they're all stuffed and they can't hold any more fat and they're rejecting insulin or be, being insulin resistant, then the fat has to go elsewhere, like in your liver, in your pancreas. And that is the, you know, metabolic syndrome roller coaster. But it all starts back in the fat cells. And the reason that's important is because we've had many clients that, you know, they're women, they're 110 pounds, and they're type 2 diabetic. It's because they don't have a lot of fat cells. And they actually, when we talk to them, they feel like it was a curse to them because, you know, most people, they get the immediate feedback that they're not eating properly because they gain weight where they could eat whatever they wanted and they never really put on extra fat because they didn't have a lot of fat cells to store them in. But that led them to diabetes. So, and that explains also, you know, somebody who might have 50 or 75 pounds of extra body fat, but not be diabetic because they've got a lot of fat cells and they're not all stuffed or inflamed. So it takes them longer to fill up all those fat cells. So that kind of explains the whole, you know, diabetes spectrum. This lifestyle, it's really about, um, and when you lower the carbs so much, you get out of this cycle of feeding and then cravings and hunger and feeding again. When you have a lot of carbohydrates, they stimulate a lot of insulin, res insulin response to drive the blood sugar back down. And when it drives it back down, that falling blood glucose we even after a large meal, when your blood glucose is falling rapidly, you get hungry. And so that's why if you eat an hour or two after eating a high carb meal, you're suddenly hungry again, even if it was a thousand calories in that meal, it's because your blood glucose is falling. So by evening that out and not having those spikes and hunger cycles, you just naturally eat less and you can reverse or use up those fat stores to, to help reverse that diabetes. All right, so another quick gear switch. One of the things that I've heard from somebody else, you know, who shall remain nameless, that works at or around Wild Foods, that's keto, has specifically said that they're not actually convinced or they've heard otherwise that keto is not particularly good for women. <laughs> I, <laughs> can you speak to that a little bit? I, I'm just in the middle of writing a large article for her blog all about this. There's that either, you know, Keto is not good for women or you need to add carbs at, you know, or do carb ups at a certain time during the month or to help support your hormones and all of these claims. 
There's no truth to them and the science actually backs that. There's an excellent article that I can share with you if you want to include uh, from Dr. Finney. Stephen, Vol Dr. Volick and Finney have done studies on keto since the 70s. They've been doing this, studying this with athletes and things for a long time. And this article by Dr. Finney was really good because it talked about does the thyroid need carbs? That's one of the knocks from those people about eating keto is your thyroid will slow down. Your thyroid levels will lower like T3. But he pointed out in, with studies that showed that what's really happening when you're keto is that your cells are more responsive to T3. And so you need less T3 around. And that's why a lot of people, they may see a, a dip in their T3 level, but they feel great. It's because your body doesn't need as much. And that's actually a good thing because a little bit slower thyroid is a good thing for longevity. If you have too fast of a thyroid, that can produce longevity overall. So there's a lot of little examples like that. Like, you know, certain people talk about their hair falling out and that's how it's somehow keto related problem because of, you know, women's hormones or whatever. Well, there's two things about that. Number one, first of all, your any major change in diet, well, you'll have some hair shedding. It's usually just the new fo new hair follicles push out the old ones and it grows back. It stops after a month or so and grows back. But a lot of times it's because they're not eating enough protein. And this is a very common in the keto community is people push fat bombs and bulletproof coffees and fat, 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 where in reality, especially if weight fat loss is the goal, after becoming keto adapted, you want to lower the fat so you allow the body to use more stored body fat for fuel. And what happens when you push fat, fat, and bulletproof coffees, you're displacing protein that could have been eaten with fat. So when you get very low protein intake, your hair starts to fall out because protein is one of the important uh, you know, amino acids are needed to build hair. So that's usually, usually these are symptoms of not doing keto the right way. And you get some problems that happen. And one of them is hair falling out. One of them is sleep issues. If you have low energy after a month or so of being keto, you're probably just having an electrolyte imbalance. Carbs are retain water when you eat carbs. And when you remove the carbs, you flush out that extra retained water, which is a good thing. But with it goes electrolytes, sodium, magnesium, potassium. And so you got to be mindful about adding electrolytes. Well, if you don't do that, then your energy could tank because you're dehydrated. So it's a, it's a symptom. And guess what? You add some carbs, you feel better because what, the, what do the carbs do? Retain water. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're kind of masking a symptom with the wrong answer. You should have just got your electrolytes right. Okay. So I want to switch your gears one more time and let's talk about that. Something near and dear to my heart is the ADD situation. There apparently have been some studies and I don't know if you're familiar with these where they've said that keto is at least helping or improving situations with ADD. Can you talk about that at all? We have had a lot of clients that first start with themselves and they see how good they feel and they want to include their children in this lifestyle. We ourselves have, you know, our kids are eight and nine right now and they've been, they just eat what we eat. So it's been about eight years of that, just eating what we eat and they are thriving and, and growing like weeds. But one of the things that we see with clients is their kids. We've had, ten, you know, ADHD, any kind of a mood or ten, attention issues when they go primarily keto. You know, when they cut the carbs low and focus more on getting good protein for their growth, they see these 
symptoms go way, way down. We've had, you know, kids that come back the next semester with every grade level going up, taking no for an answer for the but the first time they say it, little things that these parents are seeing that are just big improvements. We had, we've even had several clients with kids on the autism spectrum that one client said they ended up on a whole new level and a whole new protocol for their kid just changing the diet. And that's huge. You know, if you know anything about autism and the spectrum, if you can get to a whole new level just with diet, that's that's a huge improvement. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I You know, it's not something I ever tried, but... I do feel that the solution for ADD is not particularly good. I mean, I was diagnosed right around age 30, and I took it and had really bad experiences. Yeah. Yeah, heart racing, all kinds of weird stuff. So um, I thought it was bad. It's a huge problem. Yes, a huge problem. So I'm wondering what happens to these kids that, like, end up – you know, they grow up on this ADD medication and they can't function without yeah. it. But this sounds like a great solution to me. It is really sad. I think as a society, it's not just these drugs. There's a lot of prescription drugs that are the first line of defense when they really shouldn't be. You know, there's in our book, Keto, we try to, I tried to start it out. My view of this kind of from an engineering perspective of looking at biology and health and, you know, if I have a problem with an output in a computer chip, I'm going to look at the input and see if one of the inputs is wrong. I trust my chip is going to do the right thing. That's the first place I'm going to start is analyzing the inputs and see if they were right. In healthcare today, that's not what we do. We look at the output, you know, ADHD, diabetes, etc., and we say, okay, slap this drug on that output and try to fix the symptoms and kind of correct somewhat. And yet, for me as, a, as an engineer, I'm going to say, let's go back to the inputs, see what is failing. And, you know, the inputs are diets, sleep, uh, exercise, you know, not smoking or, you know, doing these things. All of these inputs will determine whether you have bad outputs or not. And if you fix the inputs, the outputs, they'll fix themselves. And that's kind of the the what well, we've always taken, uh, Maria and I, as our strategy is what other inputs can we change to help this person heal? And you really do heal in that case, then you're not just masking symptoms with a drug. Yeah, I could not agree more. Real food is medicine. We believe that here at Wild Foods, and it sounds like you believe that as well. So quick one of the things in your book, you talk about the government involvement with this kind of stuff and their incentives and that kind of thing. So can you yeah. speak to that really quickly? It's really shocking when you look at the case against the sugar companies and how we started on this whole avoid fat and saturated fats, the devil. It all came from sugar industry funding studies to point a finger at something other than themselves because they knew they were the problem with heart disease, with diabetes. So they said, let's point a finger somewhere else so we can protect our profits. And they paid these scientists and the reporter that one of these articles, when they got to pay their hands on these papers and, and correspondences said the level of deception was shocking. I mean, this is like on the order of the back in the day with the cigarette companies trying to cover up their outcomes. And that led us to, you know, what, 50 years of saying saturated fat and fat is the devil. And at least we're trying to, we're finally starting to make some progress peeling that back. But, you know, the, they finally have said not the RDA doesn't tell you to limit saturated fat anymore. So that's a good step in the right direction, but we're still a long ways from where we need to be. 
oh yeah, the old fat makes you fat hypothesis that uh, that always comes out. So I had one more question with for you before you go. With relation to IBS and acid reflux and that kind of thing, you've mentioned that earlier in the episode. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to work with somebody without a gallbladder, for instance? Keto is still great for them um, for a couple reasons. Number one, if they're trying to lose weight, again, uh, one of the misconceptions about this lifestyle is it's high fat, moderate protein, low carb, which it is. But if you're trying to lose weight, the high fat part doesn't have to come from the diet. Some of that high fat comes from your own stored body fat. So you don't have to be piling the fat on. You actually want to kind of moderate it down so that you allow your body to use the stored body fat for fuel. But when you have your gallbladder removed, the common bile duct still remains. And that's why you don't tip over and die. Because if you couldn't process fats, fatty acids are essential. You would you would die if you weren't able to process fats. So that's uh, plus MCT oils, which are medium chain triglycerides from like coconut oil and some in butter. Those don't even get processed. They go to the liver, so they don't need bile salts. But if you do, you, you know, it's kind of like a muscle. If you've been eating low fat, whether you have your gallbladder or not, if you don't use that muscle, it's going to kind of atrophy. It'll take a little time for it to come back and get used to producing enough bile salts and things. So it can be helpful to take like a digestive enzyme with some ox bile in it until your body adjusts and starts making enough of its own bile salts. But it's a great lifestyle for people without a gallbladder. They can still thrive. So this has been an awesome conversation. It's been extremely stimulating. I've been glued to the edge of my seat. And before we go, though, I want to kind of give you the opportunity. Maybe there was something I didn't ask. Maybe there's something you wanted to cover. Hit us with any nuggets that I might have not been able to draw out of you Get or or not, or we can go to signing off. You know, I just, this lifestyle has been so transforming that, you know, one of the things, this isn't a quick fix diet. And, you know, some of the, we've been doing this for a long time and some of the recent, because it's gotten so popular, there's some of the recent people jumping in, trying to get a piece of this because it's getting popular or kind of, you know, whether it's the, you know, bulletproof coffees or these kind of not good advice or just, you know, like this is a quick fix, you know, you do this and you lose the weight and you can go back. It takes time, you know, it takes four to six weeks to really get deep into ketosis and get efficient at burning fat for fuel. All those benefits I was talking about, about moods and mental clarity and endless energy, it takes a little while. So you got to stick with it. You got to commit to it. And we tell clients to look at this as a lifestyle because you're going to feel amazing. But if you go back, you're going to feel the effects of it. You're going to feel like crap and you're going to continue. If you go back to the way you were, you're going to go right back on that train to the problems that you got because you were that way, right? I mean, you got to look at it as a lifestyle to gain both the short-term health benefits of weight loss, but also the long-term health benefits of, you know, staving off diabetes or Alzheimer's or a lot of these issues that this lifestyle can help keep away. All right. So that's basically it. That wraps it up. Where can the listeners find you if they want to learn more? We have a blog uh, called MariaMindBodyHealth.com. And then we also have a website called Keto-Adapted.com where we have like programs and support options and subscriptions. Cool. And then we can find us on social media, whether it's on uh, Maria Emmerich or Craig Emmerich on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We also have some groups on Facebook, called one called Keto, 
another called keto carnivore, and a third one that's uh, the 30-day ketogenic cleanse for one of our books. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. No, seriously, thank you. It has been a pleasure. And obviously, listeners, you can find all this information in the show notes. And that's it for the Living Wild Podcast. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me on. It has been enlightening, illuminating, and everything in between. So again, check out the show notes for any links to anything that you're interested in from today's episode. My name is Brent Philbin. Again, that was Craig Emmerich on the Living Wild Podcast. This is just a quick reminder that the members of the Living Wild podcast team are not medical professionals. They are not doctors. They are not nutritionists or dietitians. They are here to provide entertainment for you and give you a perspective on their thoughts and their feelings. So please, before making any radical changes in your diet, do your own research and also consult a licensed medical professional and stay wild.